on Sundays uh, since March last year, so it's been about 10 months, uh, our community has been looking at and exploring the brutal, and it is brutal, the brutal story of Israel's exodus from tyranny and slavery in Egypt. It has not been a fairy story or a bed of roses. Um, the journey and the process of this exodus has been confused, it has been convoluted, and it has been messy. It is not a straightforward thing for Israel to be extracted from oppression. And I've worked really hard to try and get to grips with the story, not so that it's a children's story, but that we as adults recognise uh, uh, our own story in Israel's uh, predicament. We've worked hard to know Moses, this complicated man who uh, was cast adrift in a basket, who was uh, uh, raised in affluence, who uh, struggled over his identity, who encountered a God he didn't know in the desert after uh, uh, sort of 40 years, um, and then being sent back into a people that didn't want to listen to him, both the Egyptians and the Israelites. And, and we found in Moses a man that is racked with contradictions. And we've also looked a little harder at Egypt. And I don't know about you, but I found it very difficult to look at Egypt. I found the magnitude of uh, Egyptian slavery to be bigger than I thought. I found it uh, uh, intimidating to imagine protesting against an absolute monarchy who are in charge militarily, financially, culturally, who, uh, uh, who had the last say on everything. And then these voices of Israel protesting and how uh, in, uh, insignificant that must have been. If you know of any human rights issues that have been raised over the years, especially before today, you'll know that there can be a cry and they can seem so puny and insignificant and that they will not do anything and then the cry increases and I think that's what we find with Israel. And in those early days, I don't know if you've noticed, in those very first chapters of Exodus, but God isn't obviously involved anywhere. Where is he? Israel slides into bondage. Where is God? He brought them to Egypt to save them from famine and then suddenly he seems absent as they slide into disfavour and the powers that be decide to be threatened by them. As Egypt's violence against them increases, where is God? For hundreds of years the Israelites face increasing uh, pressure from their hosts. When Moses, this Egyptian prince, uh, protests. He ends up killing an Egyptian and becomes a murderer. Where is God when this happens? When the baby's set adrift in the basket, where is God? doesn't say he pushed it towards Pharaoh's daughter. When Moses finds himself in exile, where is God for 80 years of Moses' life? He seems absent. 
Yahweh at the beginning of Exodus seems like a shadowy force. His methods and purposes seem obscure and cryptic. I wonder if you've ever felt like that in your life, looking at disaster and tragic scenario one after the other. Well, where is God? You say he's with me and I sing that and I know there's people around me that believe is true, but where is he in my own life? And I always keep coming back and I look to my notes and it's been a while since I've read this quote as far as I can see. So I'm sorry if my notes are wrong. But it says this in a kind of like a fairy story that C.S. Lewis wrote. And there's this protest from someone who's had enough of gods. It says this, I say the gods deal very unrightly with us. For they will neither, which would be best of all, go away and leave us to live our own short days to ourselves. And if you've ever wanted God to go away, for your conscience to leave, for that sense of meaning to be abandoned so you can just get on with doing what you want. Nor will they show themselves openly and tell us what they would have us do. Who would love God to just go, right, Barry, Barbara, Kev, Francis, this is your purpose in life. And you go, oh, I don't have to worry about it, pray about it, think about it. It's just provided. For that too would be endurable. But they hint and they hover and they draw near us in dreams and oracles and in waking visions that vanish as soon as seen. They are dead silent when we question them and then glide back and whisper words we cannot understand in our ears when we most wish to be free of them. And then they show to one what they hide from another. What is all this but cat and mouse play? Blind man's buff, a mere jugglery. Why must holy places be dark places? Unless you have the uh, very best relationship to God that everyone else wishes they had, you should be able to relate to that complaint. We sense that God is here sometimes. Perhaps as Tim's strumming away, you're like, yes, God, I can feel you in the very fibres of my being. And then when that person is rude on a Monday morning, it all goes out the window and you say, there is no God and it's my duty to bring retribution. And he seems impossible to pin down. We can't replicate him time after. It's not a slot machine that we can guarantee something to put in. Sometimes we can come, perhaps, to a Sunday meeting and our hearts are full of joy and laughter and praise and then we come here and the heavens seem as brass and we're like, what are these people doing? Singing nonsense. And we wonder. And we get frustrated. And we wonder why God is on the periphery and impossible to pin down. But there is a hope in the fact that God is not explicitly mentioned at the beginning of Exodus. There is a hope in the fact that holy places are dark places. There is a hope in the fact that sometimes you are filled with joy on a Sunday morning and sometimes you're not. Firstly, there's a truth. 
that God loves to reach out to those that are struggling. If you are in dark places, God's heart, his passion is to reach out to you. If you are stumbling around blind, God has a longing to reach out and show himself. And wonderfully, this isn't dependent on you. Some of us are in dark places because we choose them. We choose sin and bad choices. We choose uh, rebellion and selfishness. And we get ourselves in all sorts of mess. And in those dark places, God goes, I love them because I come to show you myself. I come to pull you out of them. And some of us are in dark places through no fault of our own. We see sickness or debt or death plague us. And it is not something that we've done, it is something that is happening to us. And God still reaches out to those dark places and wants to help. And the second hope from the dark places is that as we exist in those dark places, as we exist in the consequences of our actions or in scenarios uh, that we played no part in, when we choose mercy, when we choose forgiveness, when we choose uh, generosity, when we choose love, we become better at seeing who God is. This life is a preparation for us to see who God is. We will see his face as we realise who we are in him. And it's strange, I hadn't planned to say this, but this morning I think some of us are wondering where God is. He's silent, he's on the periphery at best. We can reach out our hand and still not touch him. And it all seems misty and murky and dark. And I think there is an encouragement to be issued this morning. Your and our wonder and confusion is nothing new. What you are facing is not unique to you. And in that place, the presence of even the frailest faith, there's this wonderful thing that faith the size of a boulder does something. Is that right? Is it the faith, faith the size of a boulder that's applauded in scripture? What is it? Seed, a tiny little thing that has no consequence, that you throw away, that you uh, 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 dust off and put in the bin, something that has no consequence at all. God finds delight in and can use perfectly. And so if you are in a dark place, if nothing seems to go right, if God seems as absent as the sun, he says, faith the size of a mustard seed. Even the smallest glimmer of it brings him a thrill and he can do everything that he needs to with that. It is that faith that is the currency of eternity. And I want us to be reassured that those dark places aren't our destiny. They are temporary 
moments. God doesn't want us to stay in darkness. He wants us to see his face. Even in, uh, uh, at that burning bush, Moses was wanting to hide his face. Even on the mountain, he had to hide his face because God's face was too glorious to, to see. And we are being made to have faces so that we can see God ourselves. So that we can be welcomed into his presence unafraid and now is the moment to let his spirit transform us so that we can focus on the father so that we can see him for who he is now we've moved on thankfully for those moments that God isn't obviously clear but I'm not sure we really like God any better when we see his hand at work. Because he's got these plagues and they're pretty wretched. Um, I was kind of, I really don't like today's plague that we're going to look at. Um, there should be enormous relief when we see the hand of God. You know, finally he shows himself and you go, oh, that's what we're waiting for, God. And then suddenly we encounter him as he is rather than we would want him to be. And we take a step back and go, oh, I perhaps prefer you when you weren't so conspicuous. If you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 8. It is uh, Exodus chapter 8, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust to the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. Everyone say gnats. They did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust to the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, and the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Everyone say, finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. First surprising thing about this passage is it's really short. It's very uh, short and sweet. There are whole storytelling uh, mechanisms and theatrics used in the signs up to this point. But this one is told with a brief sleight of hand. It's probable that Ma uh, Moses and Aaron confronted Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said no. And then Moses said, well, I'm going to hit you with gnats. And then I'd imagine Pharaoh go, yeah, go on then, son, come at me. And you can imagine uh, that going on, but it's admitted from the text here. And what it does, it raises uh, the main points very clearly. You, uh, you don't have to be some sort of profound Bible scholar to unpick the main bits. This is my favourite slide that I've done in a long time. Look at that! So... The gnat is quite a general term, okay? There's like huge swathes of sort of insect and animal that it covers. Uh, there's not much agreement. It's not like a scientific uh, delineation in scripture. Um, 
Because of the next plague, where there are flies flying, they probably weren't airborne. And it says they attacked uh, humans and animals. So it's likely that the gnat would be what we know today as the louse. Lice, which attack humans, which seems to be what this plague's all about, they are wingless parasites. And they live, and so you've got different types. Uh, the head louse lives in your hair. If you've ever had that treatment, you know, where it stinks, I think that might be a few years ago. I'm not sure my kids get the same uh, thing when it hits the schools. But they live on the hair. Uh, body louse, um, they don't live on the skin. Uh, they live on sort of uh, bits of clothing. And the crab louse, I'm not even going to go uh, uh, there. Um, and don't look it up on Google either. Um, they're about two millimetres long, so they're visible just to the naked eye. You know, they, they are just visible, so you can just see that that's a really grim thing going on. And they're translucent, so you can see their insides. What an animal God has created. Uh, do we not sing songs about how God created lice? We don't, do we? It's funny, the poems, they focus on sort of bees and birds and sort of lions, but we don't talk about how good God is creating lice. Um, and it seems uh, each of the three, what they do, they, they come down off the hair and the clothes and they feed on the human skin about five times a day. Uh, and uh, so when they feed, it's irritant, and then their sort of feces and byproducts can get into the skin. That's why the uh, doctors don't encourage you to itch. Just imagine dust turning to lice, seething with lice. You know, you see one or two in your kid's hair and you freak out and you know you have to go for all these procedures. The whole ground seething with lice. You know all those things you do. Changing clothes, changing bed linen, washing your hair. All these things that we do that hope to get rid of them. That would be an exercise in futility because they're everywhere. There's no getting free of this plague of lice. Suddenly, water turning to blood seems a little bit more preferable. I'm like, you know what, I think I can bear that a little more than lice. Suddenly frogs everywhere, even their rotting corpses at the end of the plague, suddenly they seem a little bit more bearable than lice everywhere. It was uh, fascinating. I couldn't help start itching my scalp while I was writing this sermon. I was like, yeah, I'm not liking this at all. Just the, just the talking about it makes me uncomfortable. This is disturbing, isn't it? Elohim is the Lord of parasites and lice. You don't get many hallelujahs to that truth. But there's something there. There is no detail too small for him. He is a God of the minute and the epic. He is the God of the microscopic and the gargantuan. He is a God who can take in an empire subjugating Israel. 
as well as whatever irritants are plaguing your life. We talk, it talks in scripture, Jesus said, you know, God knows the number of hairs on your head. Well, he actually knows the number of head lice on each hair of your head. He knows you better than you know yourself. God today may be out of focus for you. You may be struggling with your Christian walk. You may be struggling uh, with discipleship, with prayer and fasting. You may be struggling with uh, going to sort of church events or mustering up any enthusiasm uh, in worship. But he sees us as we are with all our warts and wrinkles, with all our lice. He sees us without any filter on. He hasn't got a romantic picture of Isaac and Wendy and David. He doesn't uh, 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 airbrush bits away. He sees you as you are and he loves you because of what Jesus did. And suddenly it means that we can come to him about anything. There is not one aspect of our lives that we cannot bring him to prayer, that we cannot ask of him to act. If he is the God of lice, he is the God of that uncomfortable rash that you want to get rid of. He is the God of that problem at work that won't seem to go away. He is the God that cares about the minute things. And I'm going to take that slide away and we can all breathe a sigh of relief that we're not looking at those nasty animals. So, as the ground is covered in lice, as the people are covered in lice, as the livestock crawl with lice, Pharaoh's magic men square up to the challenge. Now, we know, and we've laughed at them, haven't we, that they've never stopped a plague yet. They've never even slowed one down. They are pretty inadequate to the task in hand, but it may be that they can copy it. I don't know whether you remember, but they copied the uh, rods turning into snakes. They copied the water into blood. They copied the uh, uh, creation of frogs. And they gave Pharaoh an excuse not to believe. And so they go at it again. Now, I am not sure, and it isn't specific, but you can imagine them crying out. You can imagine them uh, uh, voicing time-honoured incantations. You can imagine them making sacrifices. You can imagine them doing voodoo dances and using all sorts of religious paraphernalia at their disposal. But after all their efforts, they are frustrated. They can't recreate a plague of lice. The God of these despised Israeli immigrants, these worthless slaves that the Egyptians hate, their God does something that the God of Egypt cannot do. Egypt covers a vast array of land. It has wealth unimaginable. It has a military prowess that is second to none. It is the dominant and hegemonic power in the region, and yet the gods that it worships can't do what the Israeli god can. 
Their idols and demons are worthless. And these occultic veterans, these people know what uh, spiritual power is. They make this dramatic statement. And their cry is the very middle of this passage. Their cry is what draws our attention above all else. This is the finger of God. Lice. Of all the things. What a bizarre thing to finally become shipwrecked on. And they see that Moses and Aaron relate to a God that is foreign to them. They don't know this God that can create lies. They don't know this God that can do this thing that they can't. And he is more powerful than they. And they can sense there is a power differential going on, that suddenly this Yahweh, this Elohim, this God of Israel, is bigger and bolder and mightier than all their different gods. Now Pharaoh continues to resist these inferences, he goes, yeah, yeah, I'm not interested, flipping lice, uh, whatever. But mag magicians are turned by these lice. They see something new has happened that they have not seen before. No magician has made lice. Isn't it fascinating? Of all the different things that have happened, snakes, and the Nile into blood, right? The Nile's a massive thing, and when that turns to blood, you would imagine people go, okay, something's going on here that's unfamiliar to me. Frogs as far as the eye can see, but it is parasites coming up from the ground that arrests these magicians' attention. A little while ago, a uh, couple from our congregation got to visit Malta, and Malta's got this great tradition of Christians meeting, and they've met there for a long time. If you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 28. There's a lot of places in the Bible that sort of change hands, go into different kingdoms, that change names, and, uh, and so we struggle. A lot of the Old Testament, we don't always know exactly where it happened. Uh, but thankfully in the New Testament, a lot of places, they keep their names despite uh, uh, their rulers changing. And it says this in uh, Acts chapter 27. Chapter 27, verse 43. And uh, so the sort of centurion ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land, because we have a shipwreck going on. And the rest were to get there on planks or other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. And once safely on shore, uh, it says we, because uh, the guy that's writing this, Luke, was there with Paul. Um, and he goes, we found out the island was called Malta. And the island, uh, islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. You can relate to that, can't you? Um, Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. And when the island saw the snake hanging from his hand, um, wonderful language, Luke, hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped the sea, the goddess justice has not allowed him to live. 
But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. You notice he killed that snake. There's no keeping it as a pet or toying with it. Down it goes. The people expected him to swell up or die, uh, but after waiting a long time, and you can imagine, I can imagine my kids going, is he dead yet? Is he dead yet? Dad, Dad, what's going on? After waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. And there was a state, an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us into his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was ill in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Uh, there's no sugarcoating scripture. Uh, someone suffering from dysentery. And Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on uh, him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the ones on the island who were ill came and were cured. They honoured us in many ways and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with supplies we needed. So, on Malta, there have been Christians since this moment. I quite like that, 2,000 years of Christians. They've had their ups and downs, like the rest of us, but they're still faithful followers of Jesus on that island. And it's tracked back to this one moment. And I don't know about you, what you think a uh, congregation of saints should be starting. What does missionary activity look like? So this bunch of Christians was started by a shipwreck, a snake bite, and dysentery. Hallelujah! What an awesome God we serve that brings shipwrecks, snake bikes, and dysentery um, so that, that he can do something. What a path to knowing Jesus. I suggest, and it's my last point as I close, that it's impossible to guess what will come along and make the difference, what will be the thing that the cause a person that we know, perhaps we love, to confess Jesus as Lord and Saviour. It's impossible. We've got no idea what will tip them over the edge, what uh, straw will break the camel's back. I was talking to a policeman on Friday, um, and they were talking, and of all the things that converted this policeman to Jesus, he's reading Romans 5. That's not a bit of scripture that I'd be giving to a non-Christian to show them uh, the truth of Jesus. I've got some good scriptures out there and that's not one of them and yet he read that and his heart was melted. And it's a truth. The great Saint Augustine who uh, laboured under all sorts of different philosophies, he was stopped in his tracks and became a believer by overhearing a child sing in a garden. C.S. Lewis says he was baptised by a fairy story. Fairy story, not what you would expect. Meanwhile, Bob Dylan, I'm not sure where he is with Jesus, but he certainly had a, a Christian phase. And he talks about a holy presence that he'd never encountered before in a hotel room. No evangelist in sight. And as we pray and share Jesus this year, as we long to see the kingdom of God increase, as we long to see those lost in darkness be brought into the light, I want us to be encouraged that our king meets them in his own way. He meets them in ingenious ways that is tailored to their values and their customs and their backgrounds and their personalities. 
He knows how many lice are on the head of the person that you want to see saved. And he knows how to reach out to them. I don't think there is a formula for evangelism. There's no real strategy for evangelism. There is no prescribed method that will get someone into the kingdom of God. It is a matter of the heart and God deals with that supernaturally. And he does it in ways that confuses and sometimes, and if you remember those pictures of a louse, they can repulse you. Every decision to follow Jesus is a divinely mysterious miracle of rebirth. To us in the here and now, it can seem dark and unclear. But the spiritual captive is freed nevertheless in that place. And so this morning, I want to invite us, as we look at the year ahead, I want you to be open to lice and snake bites. I want you to be open to the things that you don't expect, that you think, oh, God can't look like that. I want you to be open to reasoning, allowing someone to see Christ clearly. I want you to be open to supernatural healings, bringing someone in. There are ignorant, there is the sceptic, there is the doubter, and God has a way of bringing each and every one of them in, in ways that we cannot fathom because we are not God. We do not know even how many hairs on our head, let alone how many lice are infestation there. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, uh, we take this story of the plague of lice rather uncomfortably, and yet, Lord God, we, we see things going on. Lord God, I thank you that uh, you are the God of the small, that you are the God of the minutiae, the God that cares about the things that even irritate us. And Lord God, I, I pray that we may understand that you are the God of the epic and the minuscule. And that, Lord God, we would come to you in prayer about everything. And Heavenly Father, I also pray for all the people that we encounter this year, that you would give us a faith and a courage in you, that we would hear your Holy Spirit and not try and bulldoze people into a particular train of thought, but we would allow you and your Holy Spirit to guide them into that moment of rebirth. Lord God, we long for your kingdom to come. We long for your kingdom to increase. We long for Bubish to be shaken by your Holy Spirit. And Lord God, we, we pray that we would let you do what you want to do, even though it may not be what we expect. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.